Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer Radio. Um, with us today is uh, Christopher Cole, who is a CFA for one thing, and even more importantly, is the founder and portfolio manager of uh, the Artemis Vega Fund, which is a specialist in uh, an asset class called volatility, that being an asset class, which is a thing in itself. Uh, Christopher began his career in capital markets and investment banking at Merrill Lynch, and there excelled, uh, not least in the year 2008. You'll recall 2008. And uh, he set up his fund, and, and now is with us today. We'll get to him in just one moment. Uh, with me uh, at this, uh, at this uh, broadcasting tower of grants is uh, the great Evan Lorenz and um, Eric Whitehead, who was working the dials. Uh, before we get into the program, uh, a word from our sponsor, who happens to be me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there has never been a bad time to subscribe to Grants, which is the contrary-minded, value-seeking, independent, twice-monthly journal of finance. Now, now is an essential time to subscribe because interest rates are near their lows. In fact, in the case of Europe and Japan, they are at 5,000-year lows. You don't see that in every moment of a average career. Uh, you know, ultra-low interest rates resemble what the young people call beer goggles. Uh, they distort perception, make plain things appear irresistibly beautiful. Uh, Grant's mission is to restore critical judgment, impart perspective, and not least to serve up original, deeply researched investment ideas. Every two weeks for well nigh 34 years, Grant's interest rate observer, thinking required. Trademark. All right. So that concludes the uh, paid advertising portion of this segment, Christopher. And I am going to invite Evan uh, to proceed with the interrogation of our witness. A very and very grateful we are to have with us Christopher Cole. Evan. Uh, Christopher, you describe volatility as an asset class, but it's not a stock or a bond. What type of thing exactly is volatility? Well, I actually would argue that, uh, that volatility is the only asset class because I think if you if you take a look at different if you decompose the returns of uh, any asset uh, bonds stocks they tend to follow uh, one type of one, one of two types of return patterns you have asset classes like value stocks and credit that have long periods of steady gains and then very sharp drawdowns uh, those are many traditional asset classes and then you have uh, other kind of asset classes, like some categories of hedge funds, CTAs, or hedging strategies that'll have long periods of either flat returns or losses and then very, very sharp gains during periods of market turbulence. So if, if you were just looking at uh, uh, different categories of assets and you had nothing but data to look at, return data, you would actually only see two types of asset classes. One would be a, a short volatility return profile, and one would be a long volatility type of return profile. And uh, that's the paradigm that I look at the world in. Yeah, it seems a long way, Christopher, from a business that makes a profit. <laughs> it's a little bit different than I think, than I think the traditional uh, Ben Graham way of looking at things. Well, Chris, on your fund's website, you also state, volatility is an instrument of truth. Uh, a layperson, uh, me, might say that we live in an increasingly volatile world and that the measure of volatility, the VIX, is re reflecting tranquility. What do you mean? Well, I think what this means is that uh, global central banks have have suppressed a ball. 
So they've, what they've done is they've taken asset returns from the future, and they've brought them to the present. And they've taken tail risk from the present, and they've pushed it out in the future. And qu quite literally, they have suppressed the tails of the return distribution and in increased the middle. Um, but this, underneath this dynamic is, I think, a tremendous amount of hidden risk. You, you, cannot, you cannot destroy risk. You can only transmute it and change it in form. And so behind this idea is that uh, they're not destroying volatility, they're just transmuting it, and that the more you try to avoid conflict, the more the conflict builds underneath the surface. And today we, we're in an environment where interest rates are at the lowest they've ever been in the history of human civilization, and that uh, the debt, the debt, global debt levels, including sovereign debt, are at the highest levels they've ever been. And this has all been an attempt to suppress conflict. And we're going to see that conflict bubble up and rise again. It, if, if it's not you have, you have through date, equity markets or – you have a date in mind, Chris? <laughs> that's that's the, tough, the tough part about it. We can talk a little bit about some of the triggers that might lead to volatility again. But I think you know, the more they try to suppress it through asset prices, the more, it'll, the more it will evolve through populism. When you say move um, returns from the tails to the middle, can you can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean absolutely. I think beginning in 2012, uh, there was an interesting paradigm shift in the, in the way that monetary policy. It wasn't a, it was not a stated policy shift, but what they went ahead and did. It started with Mario Draghi's speech, for the whatever it takes speech, and it continued on with uh, quantitative easing three, where. Uh, they began to, to enact preemptive strikes on market turbulence. It used to be that global central banks would respond to economic conditions. And instead, at that point in time, they began responding to market conditions. And as a result, markets, in a self-organizing fashion, began to embody this expectation that central banks would respond uh, whenever there was a, any level of market turbulence. So, I mean, we have, we have to imagine that, you know, when they originally began the quantitative easing program, it was done, it was supposed to be an extraordinary action in response uh, to uh, extraordinary stimulus in response to extreme conditions in markets. And by the time they, they began QE3, uh, the VIX was down at 13. So, uh, obviously, this extraordinary stimulus has become normalized. And the, the net result of that has been a unnatural era of lower and lower volatility. And one of the things that, for example, we've seen is that volatility has been unusually mean reverting. If you actually look, volatility tends to cluster. Periods of higher volatility tend to follow periods of – or when volatility rises at a certain level, it tends to stay elevated. And one of the things we've seen is this environment where every single time the market – uh, sells off, it immediately rebounds. And every time volatility spikes, it immediately drops. And that's highly unusual. That, that uh, tendency has been uh, at the highest levels in almost um, 90 years worth of, of data. So this is just a, a very quantitative way of measuring this effect where uh, central banks have come on in. Anytime there's an element of market turbulence, they respond. It embeds moral hazard into the market, and now you have people bidding up markets expecting a central bank reaction function. And this creates a whole – it not only suppresses volatility, but creates a whole slew of new risks underneath the surface.
Uh, Chris, is volatility cheap or expensive today? Well, implied probability on the S&P 500 is around 10 right now, which is half its long-term average. Realized volatility is a lot lower than that. Yeah, I think, you know, I look at vol differently than, than most people do. And the way we trade it is, 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 is through a different paradigm. You know, one way of looking at volatility, which is I think the way most of the world looks at vol, is that volatility is uh, looked at on an absolute level. So uh, how is volatility being priced um, uh, via the VIX? Uh, where is the absolute level of volatility? Another way of looking at volatility is to look at it the way a value investor looks at a stock, which is saying um, how is the market pricing that volatility? So what's really interesting is that we might see situations earlier this year where the VIX was trading at um, 1415, but volatility was realizing only 6%. Um, that actually, that implied vol premium is actually pretty expensive. Um, I would say, though, uh, almost universally, given the, where we've seen volatility collapse down with the VIX dropping to 24-year lows, we've seen forward term premia come off quite a bit and, and drop um, from last year, and that we have entered into a bear market um, in fear where not only is volatility cheap on an um, actual basis, uh, but it's actually, being che- uh, it's actually cheap on a forward and implied basis. Uh, by many measures of, of history. When did we enter a bear market in uh, fear? Well, I mean, let's take a look at, uh, you know, everyone quotes the VIX index. That's one, that's one proxy. But what's really interesting is to look at where, where do institutions play? They'll play out on, uh, uh, further out on the term structure. So they'll, they'll play out uh, maybe six months to one year, even you know, out 10 years. But if you look at around um, one year uh, uh, forward volatility, that has dropped to levels not seen since uh, 2006, 2007. So that's a true regime change. I mean, we've, we've seen long-dated volatility where many institutional investors are playing at uh, falling to levels not seen since before the crisis. And this is really uh, an indication saying, you know, I think the institutions have thrown in the towel. Uh, they're, they're not hedging anymore. And, and in fact, they're doing the opposite. They're going further out on the term structure in order to sell volatility as a yield play. Is volatility still a mean reverting uh, a measure of risk or asset class? Or have central banks really put a floor into tail events, and is volatility going to be lower than it was in the past? Um, let's break that question into two components. The first question is about mean reversion. Uh, there is this tendency in the media, every single time volatility reaches a new low, the media comes out with the exact same story over and over and over again. And I don't mean grants because your readership's very smart. I mean, I mean some of the more mainstream, uh, uh, very large publications out there that everyone gets. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the story generally is that uh, volatility is low and that volatility is likely to mean revert, and then they usually run uh, some quote by an asset manager saying that this is the calm before the storm. But if you actually look quantitatively at vol, volatility tends to cluster. So if we measure where, where does current volatility predict where one month forward volatility will be, volatil- low volatility tends to predict low volatility. And high volatility tends to predict high volatility. 
um, this is actually something that so in, in, counterintuitively, uh, you might be better off in some instances looking to short vol in a low vol regime and looking to pull off those positions the minute vol begins to trend higher. If you look at the broad history of markets, it runs counterintuitive to the way most people think about volatility. Now, what we've seen in the recent regime is a complete breakdown of that vol clustering effect. The period of 2012 to 2015 was the lowest level of vol clustering in the history of the S&P 500. So we're not talking about VIX. We're not talking about implied volatility. We're talking about realized volatility. This means that volatility has been mean reverting at a level that uh, we have never seen in history. And that, that's particularly uh, interesting to understand why that's occurring. And so in, in many ways, this inherent media bias, anticipating that volatility should jump just because it's low, uh, it might be reinforced by the fact that we, we've seen that effect uh, more pronounced in the last three years than we have in the last 90 years. Uh, that gets to another question, though. What will cause volatility to rise? Low volatility is not a good reason for volatility to increase. I mean, we can break that out, I've talked about here, just quantitatively. But what is a reason for volatility to increase? Volatility is the brother of credit. And volatility is driven by regime shifts in the credit cycle. I mean, if we just think about fundamentally what volatility is, vols derived from an option on shareholder equity. But equity itself can be thought of as a perpetual option on the future success of a company. So when times are good and credit is easy, a company can rely on the extension of a very cheap debt rather than equity to support its operations. And as a result of that, cheap credit makes the value of equity less volatile. Simple enough. It's just very simple. So if you want to go ahead and you want to see what is going to cause a volatility regime shift, you have to look at what's going to cause a regime shift in credit, what is going to cause a tightening of credit conditions, right? And right now, we are just not seeing enough tightening in credit conditions to warrant a regime shift higher in volatility. It is just that simple. Chris, we talked about um, uh, the heavy selling of uh, volatility uh, to realize yield, and one I suppose could think of that as a short sale of volatility. No, and if if that were true, um, a stock jockey might ask, uh, what is the short interest in volatility? Is it high? Is it especially high? Is it middling? Uh, how one might think of that in terms of, for example, days to cover. How, can you describe for us what appears to be a very big and rising short interest in volatility? Oh, that's a fantastic question because. Uh, so if you go back, you look at an average pension system, average state pension system, they might have an obligation to get a return of anywhere between 7 to 9%. Now, back in the 90s, you could get that on investment-grade debt. But starting after the great financial crisis, something very unique happened. Rates came down so low that the sorting of volatility as a source of yield began to become more profitable than investing in investment-grade debt. In fact, volatility 
which used to yield underneath all forms of fixed income, began to compete with high-yield debt. This is really incredibly a fundamental shift. So all of a sudden, if you, for example, sold a collateralized put obligation on the S&P that was you know, 10% of the money, you were receiving a higher yield on your collateral than you, you were receiving from many different uh, fixed income instruments. So lo and behold, what we've seen is that institutions desperately thirsty for yield have turned to shorting volatility as a fixed income alternative. And the numbers, it's very difficult to track down the numbers, but Deutsche Bank had some interesting analysis on this where they, they said that they anticipated about $10 billion of institutional short volatility selling prior to the crisis has now expanded upwards of about uh, $45 billion. There's about $8 billion worth of AUM that have been uh, put forth in um, uh, put forth in uh, mutual funds that are, that are shorting volatility, and then you had the rise of the institutional and retail volatility exchange traded product uh, space. Uh, many of the most popular strategies there are now short vol. So what you what you what you have is this tremendous interest in selling volatility as an alternative form of yield, but this in effect becomes its own powerful source of risk. And one of the scenarios that I think a lot of people have in mind is this concept of systematic selling of short volatility, which comes in line with the systematic ap application of vol targeting funds. And these combined strategies really are based on the same type of assumption of market access, continuous market access, and continuous market liquidity, and doubling down and increasing your bet size into a uh, into a uh, into a market drawdown. Some of the very same flaws which drove the portfolio insurance debacle of 1987. So, in some ways, it's almost like they say, "Well, we didn't really learn." Global central banks didn't really learn anything from 2008 because we've just relevered the system, and institutions really haven't learned anything since 1987. And I, I think the buildup of this, um, the buildup of this tremendous risk coming from uh, the short volatility profile of institutions, is 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 really a byproduct of ultra low rates. Chris, if somebody's selling it short, somebody's obviously buying it. Who's buying all this stuff? Well, it, what's interesting is that you end up having a. Uh, there, there always has been a natural. Uh, there always has been a natural. Uh, there always has been a natural bid for volatility as a hedging strategy, but ultimately, there's a number of different ways that institutions can hedge out. Uh, that dealers can hedge out that risk, and some of those reasons, and we can get very technical into this, but some of those reasons, um, in essence, can employ new forms of new forms of risk. There was there was a mutual fund where the result of dealers having to hedge their shortfall positions, in essence, caused further marks on their shortfall positions to to go uh, into the red, and so. There's different ways that dealers will take that exposure onto their books. Um, nowadays, what we're seeing is in the in the past, it used to be the in the past it used to be the banks that were allowed to short volatility. 
the banks were were uh, sorting vol in their prop desks. Now, because of Dodd-Frank, they're no longer allowed to do that. And in Dodd-Frank, they're, they're required to be long volatility and long skew. So now what we're seeing is that uh, the banks, uh, due to the regulatory requirements, can in many instances take the opposite side of that trade and hedge that trade. And it's now the risk is being transferred onto the, the balance sheets of large institutions Chris, that what, are seeking to. Yeah, what are you doing with your, with your fund's money? Are you long or are you short? Artemis is a uh, – the Artemis Vega Fund is, has, a, has a mandate to be long volatility. So we have a mandate to be long volatility and long convexity. And our mandate is to find ways to carry that long volatility and convexity exposure in a palatable way. So if you look at the average, tail risk hedging became very, very popular. So in, in many instances, we are buying that exposure. We, we are looking at opportunities where because of imbalances driven by this tremendous short volatility pressure that we're able to go ahead and uh, pick spots to buy convexity and buy volatility very inexpensively. So we're value investors in going long vol. And uh, we will use dynamic position sizing and we'll use timing in order to control uh, any type of uh, negative bleed that results from from owning that long convexity insurance. So, I mean, you talk about who's on the other side of this trade. I mean, we are now, in, uh, in, one, in one element of it. Are you, ex are you expecting to, uh, uh, to run the fund in such a way that uh, you might have a succession of indifferent or even uh, down years uh, all preceding uh, one fabulous and phenomenal whoosh to the upside? Is that how it works with the volatility trade? That is exactly the way that that is exactly the way we run the fund, and that's the way that we anticipate. However, there is a, um, there's a conceptual difference between long vol and tail risk. Uh, back in 2009, after the crisis, everyone wanted to jump into tail risk insurance. And uh, the problem is that volatility was very, very expensive, and tail risk was very expensive. And over the last few years, uh, tail risk funds have really underperformed. So the, pro the problem is that a ta the average tail risk fund is down 50% since 2012. If you're down 50%, you, you have to make 100% to, to move back in the money. Even if you end up having a, a great year, you're just back to, back to even. Um, Artemis does not have the tail risk philosophy. We, we look to go long volatility, but we look to use volatility arbitrage. We, we are very active traders and will tactically take exposure uh, to volatility when it's optimal for our clients in an attempt to mimic the return profile of a tail risk fund, but without the intensive negative bleed. And as a result of that, I think our carry profile has been uh, substantially better, but at the same time, we've shown an ability to perform incredibly well during periods of risk-off risk periods in markets. Um, we're part of, there's an index called the SIBO Long Volatility Hedge Fund Index of other funds like Artemis. Uh, there's only about, I think, eight funds in that index. Artemis is one of the, the original uh, funds in the index. What's interesting about that SIBO Long Vol Index, if, if you look over the last several years, that index has lost, on average, about 2% a year. Not, not a great return, so it's not very popular. But if you go back and you look all the way back to 2005, a 
a 50% and 50% portfolio of the SIBO Long Volatility Hedge Fund Index and the S&P would outperform the average hedge fund by 90%. Okay. So the point is that this type of strategy, if you can control the negative bleed during, during the good times, uh, the strategy can perform exceptionally well during periods of market decline and cover losses on the rest of your portfolio. And this is, this is um, the type of strategy that Artemis employs and the strategy that uh, uh, many of our, uh, a, few, a few of our peers look to, look to execute as well. Uh, Chris, you said you're a value investor in volatility. Where is uh, volatility the cheapest and where is it the most expensive? Right now, we don't see a lot of value in volatility. Right. I, I mentioned earlier that you know it's been a bear market in fear, and we don't really see a lot of value in vol right now. Um, let me give an example that where I saw a tremendous amount of value and it didn't pan out. Um, August 24th of 2015, the VIX jumps up to 40. VIX jumps up to 40. Now you can't buy the VIX. That's a statistic. So what you're doing is you're buying a forward expectation on vol. That forward expectation is a little like buying, buying the forward expectation on earnings that you're buying from a stock. Um, but if you wanted to buy the forward expectation on vol in, in August 24, 2015, you could buy that expectation maturing in just 15 days at 24. In essence, you are buying volatility at close to a 15, 16 point difference or discount to where volatility was trading at the moment. So anyone who was shorting volatility on August 24th was in essence making a bet that vol would drop below 24, 25 in 15 days. Do you know how often that's happened historically? No clue. It had never happened. The, what, the, the outcome that was embedded into the market had never occurred in history. So that's an example of how intense this moral hazard has been and this Pavlovian response to short volatility has been. So ironically, even though VIX is at 40 and the markets are selling off, the forward expectation ball was so cheap we said, boy, we can, we can buy this expectation, and if we're wrong, vol drops down to 25, and we don't lose much money. But if we're right, the convexity on the other side of the trade is so massive. Um, and you know what happened is we were wrong. Vol did drop down below 25 within 15 days. Big deal. The zero percentile outcome occurred. And it doesn't hurt you. But the point is that what if the zero percentile, out, percentile outcome didn't occur? The vol markets at that point were priced to perfection with an expectation of mean reversion. That's how strong the moral hazard Pavlovian response has been in markets. So um, I think that was a tremendous opportunity to get long volatility at what we would consider, ironically, a great valuation because the rebound was already so intensely built into the pricing. Um, and it didn't work out, but to me that was one of the best trades that I have seen in my entire career, even though it didn't work out, because the risk-reward paradigm was so skewed in one direction. 
Um, today, we see very little opportunity right now. And as a result, we're, we're laying very, very low in our, in our position sizing in terms, of, um, in terms of that type of relative value sizing. I think the opportunity today is by setting traps in volatility by, by buying long-dated volatility. So that's, that's kind of the, the opportunity set right now is because the long end of the vol curve has come down so much, if one wants to go ahead and, and, and look to execute hedges, now is a good time to go further out on the curve to, um, to buy the expectation that that curve will regime shift upward again and to have long-dated hedges. That's where the value is today. There's not, there's not a lot of value on the short, short end of the curve um, because there, there's no real catalyst for volatility to explode higher um, on, on the short end right now um, outside of geopolitical risk. So um, if one is really interested in a long-dated hedge, um, I think going, going out long right now makes sense. But one has to realize that, that if, if volatility does not move, that, that hedge will likely, will likely uh, uh, bleed, and that, that's fine if one is comfortable with that. And, and how would one do that? Is that buying long-dated VIX futures, or is that buying puts? Like, how, how, do you, how could one of our listeners actually execute that trade? Yeah, I think I think if you're looking to buy if, if you're looking to buy longer dated um, puts on the S and P, for example, that's um, or on other stock indices, now is a good time to do that because the the long dated volatility has come on down. Um, if you're if you're um, in kind of the exchange traded spot, or if you can trade futures, don't trade short dated futures. I would go longer dated futures, and I I would roll them as long as the term structure remains. Uh, relatively flat and, and, and compressed uh, out, uh, out on the long end. Um, I think it's very, very difficult for people independently to manage vol exposure. Uh, I mean, it's a full-time job, and it requires a tremendous amount of quantitative precision. So it's, it's one of those I, – I, I would advise you know, working with either an advisor or allocating to a hedge fund in order to, to gain exposure to the asset class because it's very, very difficult for somebody who has um, – someone might have excellent, excellent experience, um, excellent experience uh, in, in selecting value stocks um, or, or trading credit, but the knowledge base and the technology that one needs in order to accurately delta hedge a long-dated you know, ball position in, in a particular security, uh, that's a unique kind of skill set. Uh, and it requires active management. Well, um, you've, I'm certainly per persuaded, Chris, that I am, for one, I'm not going to try this at home. Uh, but it, yeah. it has been uh, terrific talking with you, and I, I feel uh, as if I'm beginning to have an inkling of understanding in, into this uh, metaphysical asset class we call volatility. So, Christopher Cole of the Artemis Vega Fund, thank you for being with us. Evan, thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, faithful listeners to Grant's Interest Rate Radio, do come back again. Talk to you then. So long. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.